0: I want to invite you to join me over in Mark chapter 11. This morning we're continuing our journey through the gospel of Mark. If you've been meeting with us, you know that each week we are doing one message out of each chapter, and this morning we've come to Mark chapter 11. So please take your Bibles or your electronic devices and and follow along this morning. When Jesus was on earth, he was often criticized by the religious leaders in Israel. Uh, They would criticize him for the things that he would do. Often they would criticize the miracles that he had performed. Uh, Many times it was just simply because he had done them on the Sabbath day and that was a violation of their rules and their uh, regulations. I sometimes wonder if Jesus didn't intentionally at times heal people on the Sabbath just to upset the religious leaders of his uh, day. But of all the miracles that Jesus did, there are two of those miracles that are determined by people to be destructive in nature. One we studied earlier in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus cast the demons out of the man, the demoniac, out of This legion of demons he cast out, and you'll remember the demons asked for permission and they went into 2,000 pigs and the 2,000 pigs went mad and were drowned in the sea. So they criticized Jesus for needlessly destroying uh, these pigs. Well, I doubt that there would have been any criticism if the 2,000 pigs were turned into bacon and pork sausage, but because they died in the lake, and through the miracle that was performed, a man was set free, Jesus was criticized. The other miracle is one that we're going to see today. And it regards the fig tree. That Jesus comes, finds a tree filled with leaves, goes up to get some figs to eat, and when he finds none, he curses the tree, and it withers and dies. Now, no doubt... If you had a fig tree that wasn't producing fruit and you cut it down for firewood, nobody would be critical of doing that. But for Jesus to teach a lesson, they are critical of him. And if you think not, listen to some of these comments that have been made. Joseph Klausner, in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, wrote it was a gross injustice on a tree, which was guilty of no wrong. Uh, I'm surprised I didn't hear amen from the tree huggers. Uh, uh. T.W. Manson said, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expensive out of context. In reality, he even goes further. Because he says, in his opinion, this story doesn't even belong in the Bible. And probably didn't really happen. Well, friends, I want you to know that it happened. It is a true Story, And so as we think of the cursing of the fig tree, let's look at what the passage has to say and let's see if we can't put this story uh, together. We're going to start by looking at the promise of the fig tree. Look at it in verse 13. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 12, then we'll go to verse 13. On the following day... When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season for things. All right, the promise of the fig tree. If we look at the passage, we see in verse 12 that it's morning time. Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, and he was hungry. He's made the trip from Bethany to Jerusalem. Uh, Maybe he forgot to eat breakfast that morning. Well, Jesus didn't forget anything. Maybe he chose not to have breakfast that morning. And as he comes along, he sees this fig tree filled with leaves and goes to get a fig. And when he goes to get a fig, he finds that there are no figs on the tree. Now, the writer tells us the reason there are no figs is because it was not the season. Uh, I read about the fig trees this week, and I discovered some things that I had not known before. First of all, a fig tree begins producing its fruit before leaves come on the tree. So it is reasonable to expect, if you see a fig tree with leaves, that there would be figs on that tree. The time of year here is probably March or April, which is the time that the fruit begins on the trees. And though the fruit does not completely ripen until you get to... Uh, September and October, the first part of the fruit is present there, and it is edible. It's it's not as good as the, the figs at the very end of the season, but it is something that you can eat. So Jesus goes to the tree, the tree has given the promise that there would be figs upon it. Now, before I go any further, could we turn the lights up a little bit more there in the auditorium, Uh, just so I'm able to see everybody that's here? I would appreciate that if we could bring them up. All right. Still pretty dark in the corners. If we could bring the lights up some, please. Okay, thank you. So Jesus goes... Expecting to see figs and finds that there are not figs uh, there. Essentially, the tree was advertising that there would be figs, but there are not any figs. And so Jesus is justified in expecting to find figs. And when there are not any figs, we see in our story the cursing of the fig tree. Verse 14. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, right? Jesus curses it. Now, notice there is nothing here that says that Jesus did this out of anger. There's nothing that says he was angry and cursed the fig uh, tree. The parallel account in Matthew as well says nothing about Jesus being angry. Jesus just curses the tree and says you are never to bring Forth fruit again. And we'll come back to this a little bit later in the sermon, because the next thing that I want us to see is the symbolism of the fig tree. The symbolism of the fig tree. Follow along, beginning with verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were, speaking, they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So let's unfold this as it happens. So he's cursed the fig tree. They come to Jerusalem. And he enters the temple. Now actually, from the context of the passage, to understand what's occurring here, we need to understand what occurred before. As Mark 11 opens, we have the story of the triumphal entry, where everybody praises Jesus as king, and they're out in the street shouting Hosanna to him. And then we read in verse 11 that at the end of that day he had entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So the big day, Jesus coming into the city, triumphal entry, he goes into the temple And it's late in the day by the time he arrives there and he looks over everything. It's like Jesus is making his plan for the next day of what he's going to do. So he comes back the next day. And for the second time in his ministry, he is going to cleanse the temple. There are two cleansings of the temple in the Scripture. There is a cleansing of the temple at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And now there is a cleansing of the temple at the end of the ministry of Jesus. It seems that his, his warnings, his proddings at the very beginning of his ministry did not register in the nation of Israel at all he finds the exact same conditions at the end of his ministry that he found at the beginning of his ministry. And I kind of think that as he began his ministry, he was giving them all a warning when he cleansed the temple. And now as he comes back and he cleanses the temple again, it is almost as if he is saying, it is enough. And certainly that is going to be part of the message that is being sent. And we see that he would he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the temple the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now you need to understand what was taking place here. This was not happening inside the holy place in the temple, but it was happening out in the outer courts of the temple. There was a place that was known as the court of the Gentiles. It was a place where all nations were invited to come and to worship God. Even if you were not Jewish, you were welcome into that outer court of the Gentiles there to pray to God. But instead of having a place where the Gentiles can come and worship, they've turned it into a bazaar, into a marketplace. You see, if you were coming and people for Passover would journey from great distances to come and worship God in Jerusalem and in the temple, they needed to bring sacrifices with them. Now, some would try to bring their own sacrifices. But in order... For your sacrifice to be made, it had to be approved by the priests. They were the sacrifice inspectors. And so if you have a group of corrupt priests, which is exactly what you had in Jesus' name, they controlled what could be offered. So therefore, if you're in it for the money, rather than in it... For the service of God, this is a perfect opportunity for you because all you have to do is reject the sacrifices that people brought themselves. They would say, well, it's not a perfect animal. It can't be sacrificed. They would find some reason to reject it. And if your sacrifice was rejected or if you hadn't brought one with you, You had to buy a sacrifice there. And so, in a way, good old capitalism was at work. The law of supply and demand. You have to buy a sacrifice. The only sacrifices that are acceptable are the ones that the priests have for sale. So they could charge as much as they want. And if you don't think this is big business, the Jewish historian Josephus said that around 66 AD, you know, some 33 years later, there were 255,000 lambs that were offered as sacrifices at Passover. Let that sink in for just a moment. And you can get the magnitude of the corruption that could be there. Now for the very poor, if they couldn't afford a lamb, they were allowed to sacrifice a dove. And while the lambs were being sold at a markup of 10 times over their value, uh, the pigeons that would normally sell for about, in American money, a a nickel outside the temple were sold for $4 in the temple. You see the corruption? In addition to all this corruption is the fact this is a place where people were supposed to come and be able to pray and worship God. And so Jesus is not happy with what he sees here at the end of his ministry. The corruption that is in place. And Jesus says in verse 17, as he was teaching, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And when the chief priests and the scribes hear this, they're looking for a way to destroy him. And so they leave Jerusalem. They're gone for the night. The next day they're coming back, verse 20, and as they pass by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away To its roots. And and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Actually, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that this fig tree began to wither immediately. So the next day they come by and it's completely withered, it's completely gone. For all practical purposes, it's nothing but a dried up piece of wood at this point. And Peter says to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Now it's interesting that this week while they're in the temple, the disciples will also show Jesus the temple and all of its magnificence as if to impress him. Jesus answered them, and he said, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. What did Jesus expect to see when he comes to the temple, the place that is supposed to be a place of worshiping God? He would come with the expectation that there would be faith and worship being exercised there. But instead, he finds a bazaar that's ripping off the people of his day. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and he does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass it will be done for him now that's a greatly misused text uh, in the Bible because that's a text that people use for the name-it-and-claim-it type teaching. What do they tell you? That if you just pray, and if you have enough faith, it will come to pass. And oh, how it grieves my heart when people take this upon themselves and they share this with people and create doubt and hurting in their hearts. I was recently at the hospital where there was someone who was in the process of dying that God was taking home to be with him. And they had some visit, the person had some visitors come in and say to her, you're not dying. Not if you have enough faith. Because you just need to have enough faith and pray. And even if you don't have that faith, we're going to have it for you And next month, you're going to be at the beach with us, and we're all going to be celebrating together there your healing that's going to happen if you just have enough faith to trust in God. This will happen. And a family member pulled me aside with tears in their eyes, saying, Butch, is this why my mother is dying? Because she doesn't have enough faith? Friends, can can we just think rationally here for a moment? If we would take that teaching to its ultimate conclusion, none of us would ever die until Jesus comes back. If we take it to its ultimate conclusion, it's a shame that all of those apostles didn't have enough faith, isn't it? <laughs> or they'd still be living today. And it's amazing that all of these teachers who teach this through the centuries, they're all dead and buried, too. What happened to them? And let, let's, let's take it on. How do these health and wealth preachers who preach this, if you just have enough faith, why do I see some of them wearing glasses? Do they have enough faith? Do they not practice what they're telling everybody else to believe? I like the words of Warren Worsby. He says this. We should not interpret Mark eleven twenty four 24 to mean if you pray hard enough and really believe God is obligated to answer your prayer no matter what you ask. That kind of faith is not faith in God, rather it is nothing but faith in faith or faith in feeling. See, this statement that is made here about say to the mountain, move and be cast into the sea, was an ordinary statement of the day in which Jesus believed. It's something the Jews would would say when talking about being faced with something difficult that was before them. That pray and this mountain can be moved to to see. And Jesus tells us to pray, right? We are told to have faith in God, right? And we need to believe in God. But this is not a catch-all promise that we can apply to every circumstance in our lives. We trust God in every circumstance. But unfortunately... You can have great faith and God still not answer your prayer the way that you want him to answer your prayer. You know, I want to tell you, that lady went home to be with the Lord. And I also want to tell you, she's perfectly healed right now. And she's in a better place than being at the beach. She's in the presence of Jesus. God has greater and better purposes than we sometimes imagine. The Apostle Paul had a request. His request was a thorn in the flesh, be removed from him. But God had better plans for him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Okay, I've got to get off on this tangent and get back here <laughs> to the past and wrap this up. Let's talk about the symbolism here that we have in the passage. First of all, we have the symbolism of the fig tree as it relates to the nation of Israel. It's not just about the tree outside the city. Jesus comes to the tree. He sees it expecting to find figs. Instead, he comes into the city. He curses the tree, and the tree just totally withers at that point so here's our practical application for the nation of Israel Jesus is coming into the city expecting to find faith expecting to find those who will worship him expecting to find at the temple a place of prayer and instead what does he find nothing but hypocrisy Just as the fig tree with its leaves promised that there would be figs, the temple in Jerusalem, which should hold the promise of the very presence of God and the worship of God, it is fruitless. And this magnificent temple that actually at the time of Jesus was not even yet completely rebuilt, Herod the Great began in 19 B.C. and didn't finish it until 64 A.D. And sadly, six years later, in 70 A.D., it was totally destroyed by the Romans. So what the symbolism here is? Just as the fig tree withered and died. The curse is coming upon the nation of Israel for rejecting their Messiah. And the temple is destroyed. Now let's apply that to us as a church today. Let's make application to Maranatha Bible Church. See, the the sin here is the sin of hypocrisy. Promising one thing, but not delivering in reality. And as a church, God has blessed us. And as a a church, we have a reputation of this being a place where people can come and worship God and find the teaching of the Word of God and find a family that will accept them and embrace them. But let's make sure the reality matches the reputation Let's make sure that our great children's ministries are actually teaching the Word of God and continue to teach the Word of God. Let's make sure that our youth, that though we can have a great time, and we should, that there is the Word of God that is being taught and continues to be taught. Let's make sure that when we come into our worship services, we are honoring Him as a congregation and we are preaching His Word and singing His praise. Because friends, though I believe that to be the reality right now, if that ever changes, just as God has blessed us, he can remove that blessing. May that never be the case here. May it never come to a point to where a curse would come upon the body of believers. Because we are not what we proclaim ourselves to be as a church. And then individually, are we what we claim to be as individuals? Are we truly followers of Christ? Are we truly those who honor and serve him in what we do? Or do we pretend to be one thing when we are something else. May God work in each of our hearts that if we give out the promise of fruit in our lives, that there will actually be fruit there that is honoring and pleasing to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word Help us, Lord, that we might be faithful in honoring and serving you. Forgive us for where we fail, Lord, but help us that we might be faithful in our personal lives. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.